You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Please note the storyteller Murder Most Foul contains descriptions of a crime scene and injuries that some people may find disturbing. Previously on the storyteller Murder Most Foul... The grieving family of Melanie Sturton fall under suspicion after she's found dead with her throat cut in her home in the northeast of Scotland. Like in the films, it's um, the closest to the family's suspected first. We thought it was us, but that was horrific even to think that. The majority of murders, the victim knew the perpetrator quite frequently. It's a family member. And forensics uncover the terrifying last moments of Melanie's life as she tried to escape her attacker. A lot of low-level blood smearing, so it obviously been a very active struggle while she was low down on the ground. Then she finds herself sort of trying to crawl towards the door and to get out, and then finally sustains a lethal injury just at the, the door, and that's where she ends up lying dead. I'm Isla Traquere, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case, most importantly, the killer, to see if I can finally get some answers and discover the truth behind this murder most foul. This is The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere. October 12, 1999. We pick up the story the day after Melanie's body was found. I was one of the journalists at the scene. Alison Shaw was my counterpart at sister newspaper, The Evening Express. And she's dug out her old newspaper cuttings for us to look over. So I've driven to the west end of Aberdeen, a few minutes walk from um, Great Western Road and the scene of the crime. And I'm about to go and see my effectively my old rival, uh, crime journalist. We worked for the same company, Aberdeen Journals, but separate newspapers. I worked for the Broadsheet, the Press and Journal, which came out in the mornings, and she worked for the Evening Express, the evening paper, which uh, her deadlines were throughout the day. There was a couple of editions, I think it was two editions, so, uh, we, but we were directly in competition, even though for the same company, so, but we ended up becoming great friends, and um, I haven't seen her in a long, long time, so, uh, yeah, we're about to go and um, delve down that uh, memory, dark memory lane, actually, to the time when we we were both uh, called to cover that story. Hello! Hello. Oh my God! It's so nice to see <laughs> you. Is it actually you? <laughs> How are you? You look fabulous. And you come. Do you remember us standing outside? 
across the road. The, the, the thing was, when something like this happens, um, there's very little information um, to go, and obviously the, the police are looking for help, but um, they're keeping their cards close to their chest, so there's really not a lot of information out there. So what we generally have to do is what they would call a colour piece, whereas you have to go and observe tell the public what's going on, but you haven't actually got a great deal of information to go on. So it's really what, what we were doing was watching what was happening. And I remember standing there watching the um, forensic uh, guys go up and down these seven steps because I counted them because that was one bit of information that I, that I could use, you know. Um, and you describing how the door had been dusted for fingerprints and what people were doing as they walked past. It's really, you're an observer at that stage because you can't, you can't get into the property, you can't approach any of the um, officers doing their job, but you can talk to people as they're passing by. And I think that was the thing that we were doing then was like chatting to um, neighbours. Once we learned that it was a young woman we were just absolutely horrified. We said so sort of, until Monday night had been this anonymous home is mm -hmm. now this sort of real ghoulish landmark because people were going by. If you were walking by, they were sort of lingering, trying to see what what was going on, peeking through there. I remember they had these sort of rust-coloured curtains that they'd um, drawn across the window, but the window was slightly ajar, you know, so I suppose people were thinking, you know, trying to imagine what on earth must have happened. Another journalist who worked on this story was Shona Hendry, who was my colleague at the Press and Journal. You know, there are some stories that um, that really just stick in your head. This is absolutely one of them, you know, one that um, I, I will always remember. And, and even even now, as I'm if I'm driving along Great Western Road, I, I still think about the I still think about it. And um, it just it, it's such a it's such a vivid and strong um, memory for me. Even even 20 years on, I can still remember it really clearly. You can remember the people, you remember how you felt, you remember the people that you um, that you talked to. And I think, um, you know, 20 years ago, the the media landscape was quite different to how it is now. There was no such thing as social media. Um, it was a bit more um, traditional and um, you know, people had to, there wasn't 24 hour news in, in the same way that there is now with kind of rolling news channels. And so people were relying on the newspapers, radio, TV to, to watch the news, to get, you know, to, to get their, their news. And so probably um, we found out about things maybe a bit slower than perhaps you would now where things are shared really quickly on the likes of facebook or, or twitter because in those days we we actually called the police up every hour and we said did. what's happening we did we did we did calls and said you know is there anything anything happening and the usual response was no it's you know no it's all routine um but that you would also get calls from members of the public so if there was obvious police activity somewhere um and in this case i know there were um uh, there were a lot of you know, the the forensic team were uh, were were going into the um into the flat. It was very obvious that there was um something really serious had had happened. There was something really major um going on. It was it was literally a case of um getting getting yourself to the to the location um along with all the rest of the media and finding out what you could you know going around knocking on doors, speaking to neighbours, um and trying to build a picture of what had what had actually uh, what had happened I mean, it was shocking on a lot of different levels um a because it was a very young woman she was only 22 um b because it happened in this sort of so-called respect really respectable area but the other thing that shocked people was that um 
when they said these things don't happen in Assyria, they actually did. About 20 years earlier, there had been another horrendous murder a few hundred yards away of uh, another young woman, slightly older than Melanie, but she had literally been butchered in her bed during the night, hadn't turned up to work. Somebody had raised the alarm. There were pretty alarming similarities and that the killer had never been caught. It was interesting at that, that time, that was long before the formation of the new Police Scotland, but we had access to these senior officers every day. I mean, we needed them almost, well, probably more than they needed us, you know, it was a symbiotic relationship, you know, but we could phone them up yeah. and say, what have you got for us today? Or, you know, what do you want us to concentrate on today? And they would always provide something. And equally, if they needed us to promote something, they'd come to us. The first kind of um, day or so, it, it was about kind of trying to build as much information as we as we possibly could. Who who is this person? Um, you know, where where is she from? Where does she work? You know, what's um, what's she like? What's her lifestyle like? Um, and I suppose you know why this could have happened to her. You know, what 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 circumstances could possibly have led you know to to this um to this awful thing um happening to her? You know, it was it was clear quite quickly as well. I think that um that it was a, a very violent um attack, and I think that's what made it so shocking. Um, wondering what had happened, you know, and what was the build up to um to this because it really wasn't something that you expected to happen. We're trying to paint a picture of the person without very much information to go on but I've just said that she was a quiet unassuming young woman who was just beginning to blossom fair haired and, and petite standing around five foot tall we actually know she was about I think four foot ten or four foot eleven I said she'd suffer, suffered from facial paralysis since birth she'd left her family home in Ballater for a small bed set in Aberdeen's West End and was trying to better herself through college training but unlike many of her generation she'd shunned the city's busy pub and club scene and seem content with their own home comforts and that I think is the, the really awful thing about what happened to her, it was in the comfort and safety of her own home. Clearly, and they surmised this right at the beginning, she must have opened the door to somebody she knew. There was no sign of a forced entry, so it was really, it was baffling. You, know, She was so young, she literally, people said she wouldn't have hurt a fly, so why on earth did anybody pick? on this young woman. And there's a thing there about the, that she'd shunned. Yeah, she'd this, is, shunned yeah this is a piece I'd, I'd done about her, and how she was just sort of becoming a young woman. Mm. And this is, a, this is an awful thing for her mother. It's always difficult to let go of your child um, and to see them growing up and you know moving out and becoming independent. But because she'd been quite a, sort of, a more fragile person and she'd had this facial paralysis and she was shy as a result of that and she'd had this operation on her foot earlier. Her mother was actually delighted that she'd gone into Aberdeen, she'd started this course, she was had this bed sit, she was very happy there by all accounts, you know, and it was that is a great achievement for a mother mm -hmm. to let their mm -hmm. their child go and to see them making their way in the world. So let's have a look back here. This is the day that the uh, this is the press conference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is when her parents had come back from holiday. I mean, the, the dreadful thing was that her mother didn't know when she'd phoned that Saturday morning, I think, that she was already dead. Yeah. And they were flying off on holiday, and they didn't go on holiday until about five o'clock in the evening, I think. Mm. Um, and of course, then they got the 
terrible news and they had to come back and this was just I think this was maybe on a Thursday maybe about yeah maybe about three days after mm-hmm. uh, they discovered what had happened and this poor woman uh, had to give a press conference I mean she was very brave but then she was a very determined mother wanting to get justice for her daughter and still and still is very mm-hmm. much so mm-hmm. Despite there being limited information being released to the press, we were better informed than Melanie's family, as her mother, Susan Patrick, explains. They'd spent the first day home being questioned by police and only the next day found out how Melanie had died. The following day, Paul went up and got a paper and it was, I remember it was the Daily Record and they said something about murdered Melanie, something about a knife. And I just, oh God... And, that, and we never knew that. I mean, you never knew anything, anything about how she died or anything, but it was in the papers. And so that's how you find out. Wow. And then after that, it's just like, you go and um, I see my mum and see Kevin and back. And then it was like, you never stopped after that. It was just constant. You'd go back and describe everything and nothing. And... Interviews and they went way back years and everything, and um, it was oh, it was never ending. Once you'd all been questioned and mm-hmm. and um, I'm assuming right. ruled out, yeah. you were then asked to do an appeal to the public. What was yeah. that like having to go into that room and you know there's journalists, photographers, yeah. camera people, and have to read a statement? Well, we went to the I think it must have been the media a bit before, and. Um, was kind of prepared for me mm-hmm. and I read it and I went oh my sister Tracy I can't read that can't read that and she looked and I says that's not the way I would have spoken about Melanie and it was oh just too over the top and flowery <laughs> and Melanie would have <laughs> Melanie would have laughed at you and said come on I, mum I that's know. not I, says, I can't read that I says Melanie would laugh at me and <laughs> they looked and it was like um this is okay, so they kind of asked me what I wanted to say, and then um, they did it that way. So and you got to put like, it into your own words. Yeah, okay. yeah because I couldn't, I couldn't have read that. I knew I'd be all right with the first bit and seeing like whoever it was and if anybody did any details. But there was a bit, I knew it was a bit. Um, someone about my, um, she was my baby girl, and I knew when I came to that bit, I was going to stutter, <laughs> and then. Um, like this, this stopped then and, and I said I can't send it whispered to Tracy I can't do that I can't do that and I thought yeah I can and then I just said and um, bah, that was the only bit I wavered on because it mm. was like it was close the rest was just like yeah words yeah but this was like mm. this is my baby and I oh and that affected me if facing the press wasn't hard enough Susan was about to do the unthinkable and personally identify her daughter's body, a task even the pathologist, Dr James Grieve, advised against. I says, well, I know, I says, it's a police job. I says, you've got to find out who did it. Um, just go and do it. But I says, and I turned to the Dr Grieve and I says, but I want, you've got to tell me and I want to see her. And I asked him personally and was touch and go, but he said, no, I could. But I don't know how many people did that before. Ken asked to see, and I, I needed to see her. There is a body of uh, academic opinions, certainly psychological opinion, 
feels that it is critical to be able to see the body um, in order to establish the fact of death and to start on the process of grieving and what the Americans would call closure. I do know that the Professor of Mental Health in Aberdeen University and then subsequently Robert Gordon University and I used to discuss at great length in sort of academic and philosophical terms the relative merits of showing people bodies which were mutilated either by injury or, or by decomposition. And um, I think both of us, but certainly me, came down on the side that we shouldn't do it. Now, again, the academics would have said, well, the academics who believe that you should for purposes of grieving would say, yes, well, that's your weakness, not the relative's weakness. It's because you're frightened of the reaction that you might get from relatives and that you won't be able to cope with it either for and with them or for yourself. And I used to say, yeah, well, I put my hands up to that, that relatives, the living people, are the people who are my patients as part of this. And if they have an overwhelming desire or need, then it frankly is not up to me to deny them. But it is up to me to try to find the best way of doing it. In a homicide, we have a legal responsibility, or the procurator fiscal has a legal responsibility to retain the body until a second post-mortem can be done for the defence. That can be a long time. And, you know, you have to feel the pain of the relatives. You can't get away from it. So, under the circumstances, in this situation, faced with the prospect, I decided that we had to, we had to try and deal with it. And, uh, you know, I asked my good friend, the Professor of Mental Health, what he thought about these things. And we had a discussion in the car park. And he said, told me that it was very important to brief the individual and explain what was going to be seen and, and perhaps some of my reservations and so on, give them the opportunity with, to withdraw and so on, and then to accompany them uh, to the viewing and then critically to have a debrief afterwards where any anxieties could be explored. He actually went into a big room and um, he showed me photos and to see if, can I go to see these photos just to see. And um, What were the photos of? Oh, Melanie. Her face? Or? Yeah, just her face. And to see how um, Paul was there with Tracy. Tracy's a family yeah, liaison yeah. officer. And he burst out into tears. There was no way in this world was anybody going to stop Susan seeing Melanie. I mean, nobody says, oh, she's in a mess. This is, this is you tell her. I think it might have been the first time that I uh, didn't persuade somebody not to see. And I remember, I was looking, and I, I kept saying, I says, oh, I says, my God, these police must think I'm mad. I says, because... I've never ever cried, I, I can't cry, I can't, I was looking at us and he, <laughs> Dr. Grief says, you can't, if you were coming from the Middle East you would be wailing, but you're from the North East of Scotland and you're more, can just mm -hmm. like that, and I wanted to know everything, I wanted nothing. It was a stressful event, but you know, it must have been a lot more stressful for Melanie's mother than, than, than for me, let's, let's be clear. I met her in the police station and I spoke to her. I, I, I rather suspect that I showed her some photographs to explain to her what she would see. 
just her face and uh, her hair and um, just a sheet across, but the sheet never covered the mark in her neck and it had been burst right. And I know that sounds gruesome to be looking at it and think nothing, but I wanted to know everything. And then I says, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'll go. And I took her down through the police station to the mortuary and I let her see uh, Melanie's body. She wasn't there, you know, when you go and see, you knew she wasn't there, it was her body, but she wasn't there. And I went, oh God, it was just so surreal. Did you know that the pinpricks that were on her face, did you know what they were from, did you ask? The end went just a knife. The end of the knife, so which would indicate her she'd been defending herself. Yeah, she was. Um, I found out she had been. I mean, she would have thought she would have been a little tink. <laughs> and I mean, she was. She was because she made it to the door. She made it. If you follow where the, she was on the flat and that, and the mess and the blood and everything, yeah. But where she was at the door, she made it to the door. And because of the height, even it was somebody. It was just like kind of just desperation just had been to shut her up and then by that she just, she just fell. The public knew nothing of Susan's brave act, but they did respond to her heartfelt appeal for information, leading to 60 officers being assigned to help in the investigation. Rubbish bins and drains were searched, bus passengers and commuters questioned, but little of substance emerged. I am Sandy Kelman. I'm a retired Detective Chief Inspector. I was the Senior Investigating Officer during this murder inquiry. It was probably one of the largest team we had for, you know, quite some time. There was no sign of the weapon at the scene, but it would be a, a large bladed knife. And a key line of inquiry is looking for potential weapons. Um, you're looking in bins, you're looking in alleyways, you're looking in streets, you're looking even down drains, you're making sure because if someone commits a crime uh, such as this with a weapon such as a knife, um, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to find the nearest place that they could discard it. What was your gut telling you at that point? Did you did you think this was a random attack? Do you think this was someone who she'd known? Did you think that there was the public were in danger because this person was still obviously free. I think you've got to be wary sometimes of your gut reaction because you really don't know. It was difficult initially to try and find out who could be responsible for such a horrific murder. Really, there was nothing in her lifestyle which would pinpoint a clear and obvious motive. I did go in and do a piece in the incident room um, and it was fascinating to see just the dedication and the sheer volume of work that had to be got through. Well, there was a few red herrings, I think, in the um, whole investigation. N nothing to do with the, the police. They were just follow up, following up lines. Then someone said, someone had been going past on a bus on the Saturday morning. She'd gone home from work on the Friday night. She'd obviously she'd been murdered on, on the Saturday morning, although they didn't know this at, at the time. And they had seen a man come out of the property and then break into a jog and run away. And so there was a huge um, police presence, I think maybe about a week later, when they were interviewing people in cars and buses and saying, you know, were you on this bus? Do you recall? Can anybody remember seeing 
anything about this man. So this was one of the oh, other yeah. red herrings. I had actually forgotten about it as well, because um, where Melanie worked, um, Nazareth House is run by nuns, um, and they also dish out food, I think, and help to um, down and outs. So that was one of the lines of inquiry that the police were looking at. Could it have been somebody that she'd come across in the course of her work? But ironically, all of the down and outs were entirely cooperative with the police. The police were delighted with the cooperation they got from them because, like everybody else, they were just absolutely horrified by what happened to this young woman. Despite the net being spread far and wide, a breakthrough came when the forensic team led by Chris Gannicliffe discovered bloodstains pointing to an unlikely but possible motive behind the locked door of Melanie's other room. In the bedroom, there was blood smearing. Uh, now, it's clear that no element of the assault had taken place in there because it would be very obvious from the blood distribution. You'd be, you'd be seeing signs of that. And instead, what you saw were blood smears. So this is simply a hand wet with blood, touching, handling different things. All the drawers on the uh, chest of drawers were pulled out as if someone had looked through them. They hadn't rifled through them. It's not like everything had been scattered out like a housebreaker might go systematically through each, each uh, drawer. Each drawer had been opened systematically, however. Uh, to, to look through, uh, just to see what was in there. So it was clear then that whatever it was, there was this element of opportunism afterwards. There were bloodstained, this was after the offence, and they were then looking to see what they could take and what they could steal. So again, that might tell you something about their, their relationship or the, the person that the police might be looking for. Melanie's mother, Susan Patrick, didn't believe robbery could be a motive because her daughter had little to steal. But it was the subject of money and a gossip at the local bank in Ballater that inadvertently led police to find the first CCTV image of the killer, a young woman. My ex-teacher, Gillespie, he was, had been to the Clydesdale Bank in Ballater and somebody had said, oh, how gossip goes, maybe they should not, but they said, oh, but she withdrew money the day before. So he must have been speaking to my cousin and then when the police were speaking to me, and it was just casually mentioned, I said, oh, my cousin, she says, oh, Gillespie Monroe had been in the bank. And he'd said they'd been taking money and been taken out the the bank and the account. So that's when it that's when it really kicked off. And and they just, boom, out the door. I mean, they were in my mum's and they just left me. Yeah. And then on the phone and then because it had been in the TV, on the, the bank thing. So that was, they knew it was a girl then. On the next episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul, the manhunt turns into a womanhunt. In the most shocking twist, police discover the identity of the mystery female on the bank's CCTV images. She was someone who'd been helping the police, and all the while, she was the killer. The Storyteller Murder Most Foul is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.